Good evening. Well, overnight, Sir Stephen Lovegrove, who is our UK National Security Advisor, has given, I think, a pretty dire warning, and one we need to think about and certainly debate. He said that because of a lack of dialogue that is going on in the world between us and potential aggressors, it's a risk of a rapid escalation to strategic conflict. What he means by that is a risk, ultimately, of nuclear war. He makes the point that even during the Cold War, there was a certain understanding between the two sides and lines of communication were open. Now, I don't often praise Joe Biden on this program, but the fact that Joe Biden has been on the phone today to President Xi of China can only be a good thing. Surely Churchill's mantra of war, war is better than George or must be right. So we don't just face what's going on in the Ukraine. Taiwan is directly under threat from an increasingly militaristic and expansionist Chinese Communist Party. The world is not in a good place. And yet, we barely discuss these things in this country. So my question to you at home tonight is, are we taking defence and security matters seriously enough? Let me know your thoughts, farage at gbnews.uk, because I certainly don't think we are. I've been appalled at the way in which, since 2010, we've run down our armed services, we don't discuss vital foreign policy matters, and even what is happening in Ukraine, well, frankly, it seems to me most of the British public are, frankly, bored with it at this moment in time. Perhaps I'm wrong, but that's the impression I've got. And yet we have a contest for who will be the next British Prime Minister. And the first function of government and of a Prime Minister is to protect the nation. Defence is ultimately the number one priority. Unless I've missed something, it's barely being discussed. Well, joining me to discuss all of this and more is Robert Fox, defence editor of the London Evening Standard, a veteran, I think I can call you, of, of, these, Old. Well, of these matters. But you've been writing, travelling the world, studying this stuff for a long, long time. I mean, am I right to say that we do potentially face greater threats than we have for a very long time. Yes, in a word, because, as Stephen Lovegrove said, what he had got his finger on, there is huge, hugely greater uncertainty. And particularly Putin now, in his current mood, is very, very unpredictable. But not only he, as you, you're saying, things are looking very fragile and wobbly right around the Pacific at the moment. Yeah, and with Putin, you know, when you get British cabinet ministers saying we're going to put him on a Nuremberg-style Nuremberg war triumphs trial, uh, is that the right rhetoric to be using? No because he is a problem, he has produced a problem uh, uh, with the invasion of uh, Ukraine, a sovereign, independent country. We've signed up to the sovereignty and the independence through things like the Organisation of Security and Cooperation in Europe, which Russia signed up to or whatever. We believe it has its place, and Britain has guaranteed in the past that it should be an independent member mm. of, of, of the United Nations. Putin is on a roll. He is up to something. It is very difficult to see in his mind, but we know that that is threatening. Yes, his foreign minister, Lavrov, has said, we want regime change. In other words, we want to wipe out Ukraine as a separate entity. It's a threat. An independent, westward-looking Ukraine in whatever form is seen as a threat to Russia 
as constituted under the regime of Putin and friends. And that's where the trouble really starts, because so, they're saying they're going to, they're worried about the Eastern NATO partners, how seriously we, do we take the partnership? But it's not theoretical. Very quickly, it is of vital security interest to this country in terms of things like food, energy security, keeping sea lanes open. We, we're in the mix as much as anybody. And as you quite say, in, surprisingly, Biden seemed to get this quite early on. Mm. Mm. But, I mean, presumably wars come to an end at some point through a negotiation. Is there any attempt to talk to Putin? Or is this the wrong time, in your opinion? It seems to be the wrong time at the moment because nobody that has leverage and Erdogan of Turkey has tried it. He's, tried it. He's tried to be the broker, hasn't yeah, he? Yeah, yeah, and various others. And even, I think, people in behind... Xi for various reasons in, in China. It's very complicated, but very important how they see Russia and all that. They don't. They want stealth. They don't want this this confrontation. Putin is in no mood to talk at the moment. Nor, of course, is Zelensky, as he reminds us uh, every night. But. You're quite right. I think that the nostrum must be, and I wish we were hearing it uh, from our potential two potential yeah. future prime yeah. ministers. Confront contain, but contact. The three C's. And the, uh, the, the, so, there's, there's, there's no sign of that at all. Bring our viewers and listeners up to speed, because thus far, in this debate, for who's going to be the next Conservative leader, and indeed our next Prime Minister, it's all about tax. There's virtually mm. nothing else being discussed. Where are they on Ukraine? Where are they on China? Where are they on defence? Well, they haven't focused on the fact that the security, as I said, is home and abroad. They're contained at the moment. That's why it's not a bolt-on nuisance, which is what a lot of people in the Treasury traditionally have seen, have, have, have seen it as. It is as the brighter brains in our strategic thinking are saying, what is going on in Ukraine is non-discretionary. I just want to say that we are seeing a revolution in war. It's the dark war, the digital war, which has frightening implications and we don't fully understand it. And we should be focusing on that. Now to answer your question. Yeah. I have only heard so far. Sunak earlier this year thought defence was too expensive and he wanted cuts. And, of course, Treasury, it's the easiest one, and they always look at the, the third-party fire and theft, as it were, which is welfare, pensions and things like that. They wanted to cut, cut personnel again. Now, trust is more interesting. She said she supported that, but she didn't matter. We'll support Ukraine as far as we can afford it. Mm. So that could mean anything. Yeah. We don't really want Ukraine to win, do we? Well... I think there's a, a, a tremendous problem that if... By the way, I don't think Ukraine is going to lose. I think Ukraine will go on and it will go on. It, 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 it's, it's got this... There's going to be a stalemate in the yeah, East, yeah, isn't there? Yeah, exactly. Yes. And, and, by the way, Nigel, there are, there, are, there are several of them around. Georgia, for example, yeah. the Caucasus yeah. and so on. Yeah. And that's what I fear. It's not going to be a not-quite-frozen war and it will blow up from time to time in unpredictable ways because Ukraine is so close to the Baltics. It's so close to the... Entrance yeah. to the Atlantic. Yeah. And that's why, I'm sorry, non-discretionary. It's a must. Thank you very much indeed, Robert Fox, for joining us. And I hope we've made the case this evening with him the two of us that this must be taken more seriously and the leadership candidates to be our next Prime Minister have to be questioned on this more thoroughly, more eagerly, over the course of the next, goodness me, there's almost six weeks left, believe it or not, in this election. We are not 
taking defence seriously enough, and I believe that very, very strongly. Now, 2016, we woke up on the 24th of June. We'd left the European Union. We'd said we were going. And one of the key campaigning issues was fisheries. We wanted back control of our territorial waters. And we wanted, like Norway, no longer to be throwing back dead into the sea huge tonnages of fish. It was wasteful. It was wrong in every single way. But you know something? We're six years on, and I'm sorry to say... Very little has improved. Have a look at this quick video clip. It was taken last week in St Moors in South Cornwall by fisherman Peter Green. Thousand kilo. Three pound a kilo. Be nice. Dancing on the decks. No quota. Got to be dumped. Just spoke to the MMO. Did the decent thing. Any... Uh, any chance of landing any of it, especially with the cost of fuel. You don't catch any other fish, you can see that. It's spur dogs, spur dogs and spur dogs. No, so it's got to be dumped. And the MMO that was referred to there by Peter Green is the Marine Management Organisation, and they come out with a line that catching spur dogs is prohibited by UK fishing vessels under restrictions. And, indeed, there was a shortage of spur dogs a few years ago. Spur dogs better known to you at home as Huss. That was the mainstay of Huss and chips in our fish and chip shops and was always quite a lot cheaper, actually, than cod or haddock. Uh, Peter Green from St Moore's joins me now. Peter, good evening and welcome to the programme. Yes, good evening to you, Nigel. I can remember... In the run-up to the referendum, this was an issue that I talked about and campaigned on. And then Hugh Fernley Whittingstall started to talk about this, this dreadful, dreadful waste of natural resources and discards, of course, becoming key. Um, I think most people at home thought, with Brexit, this problem had been solved. Peter, let me ask you, are things any better six years on from the referendum, or, or are we stuck where we were? In my opinion, Nigel, we're in a worse situation than we were six years ago. Um, the quota situation hasn't improved whatsoever. We, uh, the idea was that we would have our waters back, but in particular, French and Dutch boats would be kept um, outside of our 12-mile limit. The quotas could be realigned, and the inshore fleet would benefit or have what fish it was surely entitled to. Um, as you say, with the spur dogs, there was a complete ban on spur dog fishing about 10 or well, it might be 12 years ago because they said the, the scientific uh, data in brackets was um, unsure about the, the state of the stock, so we were stopped then from fishing for mm. them. But the problem is, we started to catch spur dogs, although it, it was one, one whole wonder. Um, as two other boats did exactly the same in the same area. I put that video up and I've heard from people in Ireland, north of Scotland, west of England, North Cornwall, wherever you look, they're spur dogs. And they're going to have to be dumped the same for everybody. Absolute waste of money, waste of fish. Yeah, I mean, it's... Yeah, it's a waste of your fuel, it's a waste of your time, but environmentally, I mean, it is absolutely shocking, I think, to everybody. Um, 
Is there any way we can get fishing back on the menu? Is there any way we can start to get our politicians realising and the public realising that, frankly, Brexit has not been delivered to the UK fishing industry? Well, we, we thought we had that. I mean, as you're well aware, a lot of fishermen did vote for Brexit. And I think a lot of the public followed the fishermen in sympathy almost because they knew we were having a hard time, um, you know, especially in, in the share of quota in the English Channel. But what's happened, I think that um, as negotiations continued in Brexit, I believe that more and more of our fishing was given away by Boris. And the rights were given away much as Edward Heath did in the 70s. And we're, we're in exactly the same situation as we were there, if not worse. Brexit and saw fisheries as being absolutely totemic of why we should leave. I regret to say that I agree with you. There is a lot more to be done, and I can assure you, I and many others will be shouting this corner to make sure we get a proper Brexit. Thank you for coming on the programme tonight, for sharing that horrible video with us. It's wrong. It's got to be stopped. We'll speak to you again. Thank you. Welcome back. So are we taking defence seriously enough and why is it not being properly debated in this leadership campaign? Darrell says, no, we're not. And successive governments have not taken defence seriously for the last 25 years. Wilson says, serious enough for UK forces to have trained 32,000 Ukrainians to NATO standards over the last 10 years. Well, yes, Wilson, I wasn't saying that our services do nothing. It's a question of are they big enough? Are they well enough equipped? One viewer says it's about time this government stopped the illegal boat crossings from France and defended our own borders. We need to keep our nose out of foreign wars because only warmongering globalists get involved in foreign wars. That, by the way, a view that is now very, very prevalent in the USA. Another says, no, we definitely do not. Just look at the cuts that have been made to the army. Well, you're absolutely right. And there is no indication with the plan of the army going down to 72,500 that either Truss or Sunak will reverse that. I find it quite astonishing that in 12 years of Tory government, we've cut the services to the extent that we have given where the world is. Now, some years ago, I was told there were 3 million British people on antidepressants prescribed by their GPs. I found the number very, very difficult to comprehend. But that was a long time ago. Now the number, according to the NHS, and I find this hard to believe, but now the number is 8.3 million. 8.3 million people being prescribed antidepressants. And often they're on them for a very long period of time with goodness knows what side effects. Now, I'm not a medico, as you well know, but last week a very, very interesting report was produced and Professor Joanne Moncrief is joining me here to discuss this. Welcome to the programme. Thank you. The, the idea that we've all understood for years is that depression is caused by a chemical imbalance. It's serotonin, a lack of serotonin that causes the problem. Your recent research suggests that may not be right. Absolutely. So people have been told this story for, for a long time, as you say. It started in the 1990s with the ph pharmaceutical industry and their marketing campaigns. And it really 
it, it really became a sort of cultural idea. It, it really became widely accepted and, and has continued to be promoted by, by doctors and other people. And however, it was known for, it has been known for quite a while that, that the evidence of, the evidence on this theory didn't really stack up, that the studies were inconsistent, but no one had previously really got the evidence together and been able to take a, a proper overview of all the different research in the different areas. So that's what we did in our, in our research. We looked at all the research in the main areas that have looked at links between serotonin and depression and didn't find any convincing evidence in any of those areas for an, any abnormality of serotonin in depression and certainly not for low serotonin in people. But Joanna, you are taking on a status quo that has been there, established now yeah. for decades. Yeah. How is your research, how is your publication being taken by uh, GPs, by the pharmaceutical industry? I mean, are, are you now outcast for daring to say this? <laughs> well, one, one common response is, oh, well, We've known for ages it's not low serotonin, but it's it's probably some other some other complicated neurochemical problem. Uh, but the problem with that response is there isn't any evidence for any other um, neurochemical hypothesis either. I mean, the serotonin hypothesis is one of the clearest hypotheses. Mm -hmm. It's had one of the um, you know it's had a vast amount of research looking at it, and it turns out not to be right. So so. Um, and, you know, any other neurochemical, um, any other proposition that depression is due to this chemical or that chemical is just speculation. It's not, you know, it's not a proven scientific fact. It, it is this number. I mean, it can't be right. 8.3 million can't be right, surely. It's, it's 8.3 million in England alone. Goodness As me. well, I know. So it's, it's staggering. And that's been going up steadily over the last few decades. And of particular concern is that it's going up in young people a lot at the moment. And as you said, uh, more and more people are taking these drugs for long periods of time, mm. which mm. which we have to worry about. And I think how that relates to my research as well is if if we don't have evidence that the drugs are working by rectifying an underlying imbalance, we know that they are affecting serotonin. So we have to conclude that they're actually changing the brain chemistry in some way. And if you change your brain chemistry over a long period of time, that may have harmful effects. Joanna Moncrief, I thank you for coming on, talking about your research. I'm alarmed by these figures. We talk a lot about illegal drugs and the damage they do in society. I wonder whether we talk enough yeah. about legally prescribed drugs yeah, and the yeah, potential yeah. harm yeah. they could yeah. cause. I'm going to return to this issue and I want you to come back, please, and keep me up to date with where we're going. Thank okay. you. Thank you. Very much indeed. Well, I have to say I find those numbers absolutely, totally and utterly shocking. Now... The Labour Party, we saw yesterday, didn't we, Sam Tarry, in direct contravention of what Sir Keir Starmer said. It's the RMT strike, Sam Tarry. There he was, shadow minister for buses and local transport, although in his interview with Good Morning Britain, he did seem to promote himself to being shadow minister for transport. And he was sacked by Starmer yesterday. Now, whether that was strength on Starmer's path or weakness on Starmer's path, you can be at home and speculate about. But what is an interesting, much wider debate is what now is the relationship of the Labour Party, or perhaps more importantly, the wider Labour movement with the trade union movement. After all, they worked hand in glove for decade after decade. It would appear, would it not, and I'm joined by Ken Livingstone, 
not currently a Labour Party <laughs> member, but you've been in and out over the years, but the Labour movement, of course, yeah. Ken, has, has been your well, whole life. Of course. I mean, back in the 1960s, I, I joined a trade union, I joined the Labour Party. They were totally integrated. I mean, um, at my local Labour Party meeting, there were all these delegations from the trade unions and other people like me and so on, and it, it, you worked together. In actual fact, the Labour Party had been created by the trade unions yeah. about a century ago. Yeah. And the idea now that, I mean, you've got a Labour leader who sacks somebody for supporting workers on strike. And those people on, uh, working on the rail industry, they're being given pay cuts. I mean, they're, they're well, hang pays... on, hang on, hang on. They're being offered 8% pay rise over the next two over years. Over two years, but there'll be about 15% inflation. I mean, for the last couple of years, across... I mean, the private and public sector, people's wage increases haven't kept up with inflation. People are worse off. That is without doubt mm. true. And I felt when Mick Lynch mm. first went onto the airwaves, he was commanding a fair yeah. bit of public sympathy. He's good at it, mm. you know. Um, but when suddenly an offer for 8% over two years comes, and people say, well, I get that doesn't keep pace with inflation, but it's more than I'm going to get. I mean, aren't we in one of those situations where well, every pay demand that comes from a trade union, mm. can can't be met. Well, it can be met. We're the fifth richest nation in the world, but almost all our, the wealth that's created go to that richest 1%, oh, one-tenth of 1%. I mean, we were, in the last 40 years, inequality in Britain has doubled. I was born at the end of the war, and in that first... 30 years after the war, inequality was hard. We were all optimistic. Every year, everything got better. Everybody got a job. I mean, if you couldn't buy a home, you'd eventually get a council home, things like that. Now look at the world we're in. I agree that the rich have got richer. Mm. I, I completely agree with that. Mm. I understand that. Although, mm. fair to say, the top 1%, do pay 30% of tax revenue. No, no. They launch so it well, all through dodgy deals well, in the well, Middle East. Not everybody that's rich and successful is a crook. But that, most of the that's people... And socialists get that wrong. The super but, but, rich but don't let, pay their but fair But let's share. get back to the point. Yeah. We, we, we've now got the threat of strikes mm. in sector mm. after sector, mm. both across the public mm. and the private mm. sectors. Isn't the lesson, the harsh lesson from the 1970s, mm. that if you give in to trade union and private sector demands for wage increases in line with inflation, all you do is fuel inflation further. No, no. I mean, the simple fact is you can't expect that ordinary people with a, you know, a family to care for should see a pay cut on the scale we've been seeing in the last few years. This is ridiculous. As I said, we're the fifth richest nation in the world. With a, but the with a massive deficit, Ken. Yes, and that's why I'm opposed to any more borrowing. We should be counting on... When I became the leader of the Great London Council, we had a huge debt. I actually each year reduced that. So how do we pay? How do we keep... How do we give pay increases in line with really inflation easy. and not increase debt? We have a fairer tax system. So Literally, you, you want to tax the, the richest the people... Don't pay any tax at all. They launder all their money overseas and things like that. That is just not fair. Uh, but, but it, of course it's not fair, but it is it's true. It's not right. And many of our largest companies are laundering their money abroad. They're not paying tax. I mean, literally, the, the inequality um, in terms of tax burdens has just become in, absolutely intolerable. Ken, if you pursue that route, and you mm. remember mm. that in 1979... Mm. 
Top rate income, forget unearned mm. income, but income tax top rate was 83%. Yeah. And it saw a flight of our young graduates, our young know. talented people. They left for other parts of the world. When I got my first job in 1962, the Tory Prime Minister, um, Macmillan, the top rate of tax on the richest was 98%. And that was the norm. That was unearned income. Yeah. That was a... And Keir Starmer, what does he do? Because he's positioning himself a little bit piggy in the middle here, isn't he? He's well, not he... coming down on the side of the unions. He's not trying to oppose them. What should he do? Well, when he was running for leader, I, I supported him. I've been disappointed. I, the, the sacking of the MP today, I think, is wrong. I think the trouble with Keir is he's trying to accommodate to the right too much. But if you want a good Labour victory at the next election, you have to have good, radical socialist policies. Like when Wilson won in 64, you know. Didn't work for Corbyn, did it? Well, I, the, the real problem for Jack, when you actually look back, Jeremy had been leader for two years, and then there was the 2017 election. He got the biggest increase in the Labour vote for 72 years, came within 2% of defeating the Tories. But then you had oh, yeah, all these lies and smears about anti-Semitism. And, no and, lies, were they? Of course. I mean, I've been in the Labour Party since 1969. In all that time, I've never heard a single anti-Semitic comment. I've only ever heard one racist comment back in 1970. If you're racist or anti-Semitic, you're going to join the Labour The Labour Party has been the home, political homeland for the Jewish community for a century. When I got elected to Parliament back in 87, almost every Jewish MP was sitting on the Labour mm. benches. Ken Livingstone, it's great to have you on the show. Wonderful. And the great thing about GB News is we're here for free speech. We want <laughs> Labour voices, we want Conservative voices. You get my voice and opinion too, but we think... You're big enough and ugly enough at home to make your own minds up. And we're about free speech, and that's what really matters. I'm sure Ken and I... That's why I watch you every day. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. Now, a couple of What the Farage moments. Now, the Tavistock Clinic, which has been very much criticised for giving transgender altering drugs to under-18s has been closed down by the government. These things will be dealt with at regional levels, which is good. But here's something that's going to shock you. Have a look at this graph of fuel prices in the UK and compare them with our neighbours. Have a look at this. It's absolutely stunning. It's frightening. So there it is. Let's take diesel, shall we? Diesel in the UK, 196 a litre. In the USA, 115. Go to Japan, it's 88p. Go to the rest of Europe, it's 30p cheaper. Now look, now look. The fact is... We are, whatever Ken says about tax on those that earn a lot of money, we're all paying way too much tax compared to our neighbours. And when everybody tells you that it's all about world market prices, that is nonsense. You can see there, actually, we're living in rip-off Britain. Now, Bernard Cribbins, who for decade after decade appeared in films on our televisions, in plays. He did comedy, he sang, he, he, he did drama. And I wanted to pay a little tribute to 93-year-old Bernard Cribbins with, from 1962, and it's a wonderful, light, humorous, but it's also self-deprecatory about the British workman. Here's Right Said Fred with Bernard Cribbins. Right Said Fred, both of us together, one each end and steady as we go. Ooh. Oh. Tried to shift it, couldn't even lift it We was getting nowhere And so we had a cup of tea And right said Fred, give a cup of And Bernard Cribbins' career 
started in 1957. His first film was The Yangtze Incident. And he went on all through the 50s and 60s in films, a list as long as your arm. His first carry-on film in the early 60s, Carry On Jack, Carry On Spying, The Dalek Invasion of the Earth, Casino Royale with Peter Sellers, of course, the epic Railway Children from 1970, Carry On Columbus, and then when it comes to television, Bernard Cribbins, he was in David Copperfield. He was the voice of the Wombles for the first 60 episode. He was, of course, in Faulty Towers. He was in Wurzel Gummidge. He was in Coronation Street. He was in Last of the Summer Wine. He was, of course, in Doctor Who, in Midsummer Murders, and well into his 80s, his last role in 2016 is he played the voice of great uncle Bulgaria in the Wombles. A truly an absolute legend who touched the lives of all of us over decade after decade after decade. And we pay tribute tonight to Bernard Cribbins, his contribution to our country and for helping to make us smile, which is really important. It's time for Talking Pints, and I'm joined by former Liberal Democrat Member of Parliament and many other things, and a friend of mine, Leonard O'Keefe. Good to see you, Very sir. good to see you. It's been, been far well. too long. Yeah. Cheers. Now, Lembit, I guess, kind of, you were in Parliament for 13 years. Yeah. Because of all the different things you've done since then, many people may have forgotten that Never. there once was a serious... Is <laughs> this possible? You? I mean, it's always been a serious. It's been a serious Nigel Farage, but we do it with a smile. We do. What was it like? I mean, you got elected as a Liberal Democrat MP for that seat, Montgomeryshire. Did you enjoy being an MP? Uh, at the beginning, yes. I was sort of pushed into it because at that point, being a Lib Dem was a good career move. And I was training a lot of other people, including Ed Davey at the time, and they said, look, Lemby, you've got to stand up and be candid yourself. It was great. I got elected in 97. Real privilege to be in the Mother of Parliament. Mm. First five years, tremendous. Second five years, even better. But then it kind of lost its luster. And that's because... Uh, at the very best, the Lib Dems were really an inspirational group and people like Paddy Ashton and I have to say Charles Kennedy. They were really good fun to work with and they had a mission and then I think the party lost its way and that's when I stopped enjoying it. You see, I mean, liberal, the old-fashioned use of the word liberal is that you believe in free speech, you believe in supporting the small, the weak, um, but you absolutely believe that people should be free to do what the hell they yeah. like, provided it doesn't impinge directly on others. Yeah. I mean, liberalism now means control. It means banning things that they don't approve of. <laughs> What's gone wrong with liberalism? No, liberalism doesn't mean control, but the Liberal Democrats today interpret it as control. Everything from what I think is a ridiculously authoritarian environmental crisis agenda, which I don't agree with at all, right through to more or less saying you can do anything you like as long as it's not offensive. Way wrong answer. Libertarianism says you can offend other people because that's what free speech is about. It's easy to let people to talk, talk if you actually agree with them. But the real test is if you're willing to tolerate people when they don't agree. Look how well you and Ken get on. You've got completely different political views, yeah. but you both respect free speech. Yeah, no, absolutely. And that's what got me into no, politics. No, absolutely. And what was the final break? Was it Brexit that was the final break with the Lib Dems for you? Uh, it was... I thought that they were completely patronising about Brexit. At that point, I was even Remain-ish, though subsequently I think that events have proved you are 100% right. 
uh, it was really the lack of liberalism, libertarianism. Yeah. You couldn't be who you wanted to be unless you conformed to the, the woke agenda, which in itself is conformism. And that's when I said, I have to, I've said this publicly before, Nick Clegg didn't strike me as a liberal Democrat in my uh, traditional mm. interpretation. So it was when they didn't have a proper talk about potentially legalizing drugs, which seems to be the only solution in my view. I may be wrong, but you couldn't even talk about it. They, they thought that they could impose an international agenda. Um, I think it was described once as uh, the, uh, the Britishman marching across the world with a gun in one hand and a Bible in the other. That's not liberalism. And that wasn't me. So I feel the party's moved rather than me. Yeah, well, since 2010, you've, of course, become many, many things. And very outspoken on climate change now. You know, we're told that sea levels are rising, uh, record temperatures last week. Uh, man is causing this catastrophe. What say you, Lembidopic? It's rubbish. There is, is no Why climate is crisis. Because... Well, well, the terrible fires burning in Europe last week. Yes, but if you look at the facts, you'll find that June was a colder June than we've had for years. The Antarctic ice sheet is actually increasing. You don't get told that. Uh, in fact, the Antarctic recorded its second coldest six months last year in, in, in recorded history. That doesn't fit zeitgeist. Fundamentally, CO2 can't drive the agenda of, of... can't drive the climate. It drives the agenda. Now, I've been studying this for 44 years. I actually had my first thing published about this whole subject when I was 15, back in 1980. So not a Johnny come lately to this. I'll challenge anyone who's watching to send me the data to show that human caused CO2 or CO2 generally is massively affecting the climate. It's not. What does affect it is orbits, the way the Earth goes around the sun, which we can't change, and the sun's cycles itself and other things to do with how currents work in the ocean. So it's a scientific view. I've got nothing invested in it in that sense, apart from the fact I love no, well, the fact we've got a new look, religion. Limbit. Most people disagree with you, but you believe it and you argue for it. And while we let's stick with space, asteroids. <laughs> I mean, you became famous in Parliament, I think. <laughs> and I thought, God, he's an absolute nutcase. This bloke. I mean, he's off the wall. This one. And they're telling us that you know, the biggest threat we faced wasn't climate change; it was asteroids. And it's still do is. explain. It is. My grandfather was an astronomer. My father, a nuclear physicist. So, from a scientific point of view, I could see that the pioneering work my grandfather did about this—that Earth had been hit by asteroids before and it would happen again—was on the money, and we need to do something about it because never mind if we have a warm climate if we all get incinerated by a 10 kilometer wide asteroid then there won't be many uh, awards for saying i told you so i actually made a rather thoughtless statement in one but of isn't this more alarmist than even the climate change people uh, yes but with a good cause uh, the dinosaurs aren't here really to pick up the pieces they were incinerated by a single object that came in over the gulf of mexico we saw something in russia not long ago which actually injured 2000 people in 1908 an object hit siberia big enough to incinerate everything around us right out to the M25. So this has happened before. 50,000 tonnes of space rock hits the Earth every year, mm. but normally in small bits. Mm. So maybe I do sound cranky on this, but mm. the science oh, is with me. Oh, thanks very much indeed. <laughs> no, it's all you. right. I will find you and say I told you so. That'll be my last <laughs> breath. Well, we'll, we'll all be dead. It won't matter. Well, uh, you know. Know. So, well, OK, fine. I hear what you're saying. What can we do about it? Uh, we can actually mitigate. The way to do it is to see these things coming 10, 15, 20 years out, give them a little nudge. A small nudge. A nudge? Yeah. yeah, that's what all you can do. Don't smash them up because then lots of bits will hit the earth instead of one. But if you had a, let's say, if you had a car rolling down a hill and the hill was a million miles long, a tiny nudge will mean it'll miss the house. You see, it's fascinating, Linda. I, I mean, I love talking to you because, <laughs> you know... There are subjects I can discuss with you that I don't discuss with any other human being. I know. And I, and I wonder, because you had, in the late 90s, quite a, what, a near-death 
experience, um, and I've been through similar things myself. You went through a paragliding accident. Yeah. Tell us about that. Yes, uh, we shared that. We both nearly died mm. uh, because of aeronautics. Now, I'm a passionate pilot. I love aviation. I think it's uh, a, a great uh, field of achievement for humanity. I made the mistake of becoming a paraglider. That's like a parachute that you jump off and actually are foolish enough to think you can fly with. It's... And this is quite typical, I think, of our guests. But well, yes, but I, I was never one to calculate the risks. <laughs> but you got lucky. <laughs> but so did I, because both of us could have been killed. The wind changed, so I made a mistake with the air brakes. One way or the other, the thing collapsed. And we're about on the sixth floor here. That's how far I fell. And I landed wow. vertically. I broke my, uh, my sternum, my ribs, my jaw, and I broke my back in 12 places. Now, it was touch and go. I walked off a mountain with help from my friend Rob Burridge. Without him, I'd be dead. And it does change your point of view. And I'm sure you had a similar experience when that plane flipped over uh, and, and you faced death as well. And it really was life and death. 65 miles from that mountainside to Shrewsbury Hospital, they saved my life. Is it a different limb at OPIC after that? Yes, but not immediately. I remember at the time knowing it was going to change me. I think I was fairly selfish, fairly self-obsessed. The politics of Parliament does that to you. But over time, you begin to realise it can change you. I've had reconstructive surgery mm. right up till two years ago, in fact. My, my whole face and jaw structures had to be rebuilt because I couldn't eat anymore. Uh, the reality is all the things we moan about, all the things we complain about, are really trivial when you're actually faced with death. And I see something liberating in the way you behave, perhaps for the same reason. And if you haven't been through it, you forget that a late bus or an expensive pint is nothing when you remember that you are at least here to, to, yeah, to have I, those experiences. I, I promised myself after the plane crash I would never let little things really yeah. anger me. And I've probably failed on that once <laughs> or twice, but I do re-remind myself <laughs> quite regularly. Well, certainly what uh, the accident didn't do was make you shy with women. Um, <laughs> do you say this that? Is, this is, uh, well, I mean, Sean Lloyd, the cheeky girl. I mean, and suddenly, <laughs> Lembit Opic, the Liberal Democrat Member of Parliament and the guy with views that are considered off the wall by many, but he believes in. And suddenly you're, you're tabloid Lembit, aren't you? Uh, yes, because the media love what seems like eccentricity. But you loved it. I was flattered by it. I didn't invite you it. You loved it. Oh, I ran with it. You say you don't do the same thing, Mr Farage. I'm talking to you, you're not talking to me. OK, all right, sorry. <laughs> no, yeah, good, no, good point no, well made. No, no, I mean, look, I, I, of course, of course, you know, when I was very much on the front pages, <laughs> of course I loved it and I enjoyed it. But, I mean, the cheeky girl thing particularly, you revelled in it, Yeah, well, you? it was an authentic relationship. She's a, she was a great girl, she is a great girl, selling cars up in, in Yorkshire now, as, as is her sister. They're really decent people and that was an authentic relationship. But what was interesting, of course, I didn't see it the way the world looked in. And I was naive to an extent because... There was a lot of, first of all, you're kind of uh, adorned on the headlines and in the papers because it's fun, but it turns against you as well. Mm. You're supping with the devil in that situation. And it probably was instrumental in my unplanned defeat in 2010. Would I change things? No, because at the end of the day, I'd have been compromising what I believed in for the sake of being in politics. And so many people corrode their yeah, personalities yeah. and their values for doing that. <laughs> no, so, I agree with that. So, so I was drawn into the celebrity, and it is fun. Sometimes it's really flattering. But then at the same time, it's a very, very hot potato. Sometimes oh, you get burned. It's like going to a good party. But there's, you know, there could be a hangover the next morning. You might say that couldn't possibly come. No. <laughs> Boris could help us with that one. <laughs> and since then, so Radio Kent you've been yeah. doing and you're enjoying hosting programmes. Yeah. You're a regular yeah. on GB News. Yeah. 
I mean, is this is is Lembinopic now going to become and stay as a media personality, a commentator? What are your plans? Well, I do quite a lot of broadcasting, and yep. uh, I'd love to carry on doing that. Do quite a lot of public affairs. I am still doing space. I'm the chairman of Parliament for Escadia, the world's first space nation. I'll get you an honorary membership. <laughs> well, well, I say. Um, and so I'm still doing that. But yep. at the end of the day, I've got two kids, and yep. that's really important to me. And that's happened quite late in life. Yeah, five years and, and one year. I want to call yep. one of them pension plan and the other one COVID, but that was overruled. <laughs> it's Angela and Maria, as it turns out. Uh, and Sabina's <laughs> doing a good job of, of being them. I'm probably better than I am as a, as a dad. When it comes down to it, all of this adds up to uh, something that was told. I think it was by the Dalai Lama, he said, not to me directly. He said, the way to make God laugh is to tell him your plans. So I don't know where I'm going, no. but I'm enjoying the journey. And you look at the country today, somebody elected to Parliament 25 mm. years ago. How does Britain look to you today? Uh, it's on a downward curve. I think there was this huge optimism in the early noughties. I remember thinking in about 0102 when Parliament was great. It was inspirational. It was positive. There was cross-party friendship. There's no doubt the Blair-Clinton relationship really was world-beating. And you felt things were great. You could actually get a 110% mortgage back then, if you remember. Now it seems that we're... Well, look, look what that led to. Well, it led to a lot of success and then a terrible crash in 08. Yeah. But that wasn't necessarily because of what was going right in 2002. I think what's happened is partly because politics has become more oppressed and it's got career politicians, people have done nothing else. They don't really relate to what it's like to be in a dole queue. I was on the dole in the 80s the, and many others were too. You have to swim up the river when you're out here. It's not performance-related pay, particularly when you're in Parliament. No. And I think that's, that's what's causing the problem. Trust versus Sunak, well, I'm not a Tory, so I won't express my view, but they're really going to have to reinvigorate faith in politics. Everybody knows, I think, Starmer's doing a really poor job as opposition leader. Uh, and so, so who's leading the country? Who's going to inspire Dave, the country? And Ed Davies leading the Lib Dems to big by-election wins. Well, he has done very well. I used to share an office with him, and frankly, I, I thought they would win something, but fair play to Ed. He's, he's capitalising it on me, but he hasn't converted that into a very public building for the party. He's doing well by default because the others are doing badly. Who is the Churchill? Who is the leader? Who is the Farage to lead this country? And I think that that's one thing that's really missing. The best years of my political life were when you had inspirational leaders like Kennedy, like Blair, I have to say, and even people like Haig who were really engaging. Now we've gone... And funny. And funny engaging, and they didn't take themselves too seriously. Now that's been replaced by sepia and grey, and that's the last thing a country in trouble needs. Final thought. If we get, after the next election, a Lib Dem... Labour, SNP coalition, and we get proportional representation. Would that be a good thing or a bad thing for public life in our country? Uh, uh, there are three problems with what you've said. SNP uh, in that coalition means there'll be an independence for Scotland. No, they'll get another referendum and they'll lose. Uh, that would, the deal would probably have to be more sophisticated than that. But OK, maybe, maybe Nicola Sturgeon would go for that. You'd certainly be reopening the breakup of the, of the union, which I'm not too keen on. So that's a negative, in my view. Mm -hmm. uh, in terms of Labour under Starmer and the Lib Dems, Ed Davey would play, play, play a straight hand, but I just, for reasons I won't even go on to, uh, into on air, no. I don't think Starmer is the right person to lead this country, and that's a problem. And then I suppose the biggest question is, can anyone bring this country together instead of being divided? I don't think that coalition would do it. So 
let's okay. let's hope for the best, but we've yeah. got to prepare that things won't necessarily get better. But of course, if called upon to serve under your government, no reasonable offer refused. I'll drink to that. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Limpit, for joining me. That was Limpit that big on talking pints. Terrific. Thank you. We have a very short time left for Barrage the Farage. Here goes Bob Asks Me. Why pay a union leader 150k when they fail to reach an agreement and expect the members to do their job for them? Don't ask me. I don't know the answer to that one. I mean, trade union leaders being paid that money, still living in cheap council houses. There's probably too much of it. Can't answer it. Peter asks, do you think Trump needs to run for the next election or would it be wiser for him to have more of a godfather-type role, especially as the Republicans have a very talented Ron DeSantis, who is more capable of being a two-term president. You know what? I'm off to Dallas the weekend after next. It'll be uh, one of the big CPAC conferences. Trump will be speaking. DeSantis will be there. I obviously know Trump pretty well. I have, I have met DeSantis and sat with him at dinner. DeSantis, massively impressive. Incredible stuff that he's doing in Florida. I just think for now... Trump has got a better chance of winning that blue-collar vote from the Atlantic coast of Pennsylvania right through the Great Lakes to Wisconsin. I think Trump is still their election winner. But, hey, do you know what? They've got lots of choices. Look at the Democrats. Goodness gracious me. I am done for the week. I've enjoyed this evening enormously, and I know you're up for... A lot of real entertainment in a moment with Mark Stein. Hi, Mark. Hey there, Nigel. I think you're right. I don't think DeSantis is finished in Florida. I think he's still got lots of stuff he, he wants to do there. And uh, Doing a great job, though, isn't yeah, he? Yeah, oh, no, he is. But you're right. I think the winning ticket would be Biden-Pelosi. I think they've got a combined <laughs> age of about 237. And they're in pretty good shape for their age. Uh, <laughs> thank you, Nigel. Terrific, uh, terrific show. Really uh, enjoyed it. we got all the usual fun stuff. We've... Uh, got grooming gangs, we've got uh, uh, exciting developments on the transgender issues, we've got a little bit of Kamala Harris too, because that's always good for comedy relief, and it is all coming up on the Mark Stein Show right after the weather. Hello there, my name's Greg Dewhurst and welcome to your latest broadcast. It is looking mostly dry over the next 24 hours or so across the UK. There will be some showers and it stays on the warm side for many of us. High pressure just about holding on for the next 24 hours. However, as we move into the weekend, that slips away. It allows weather systems to move in from the Atlantic, bringing outbreaks of rain and stronger winds to some of us as well. For the rest of Thursday evening, though, a quiet end to the day. One or two heavy showers, though, still possible across parts of Dumfries and Galloway up into the Borders region. These continuing into the early hours. But for most, a dry night, some clear spells as well. And temperatures on the mild side, 11 to 16 Celsius. So a warm start to Friday morning. The best of the sunshine first thing across central southern parts of England and Wales. Cloudy across the Pennines up into the Borders region. Some outbreaks of rain here. Plenty of sunshine initially across Scotland and Northern Ireland. Through into the afternoon, many places dry with plenty of sunny spells. Though a few showers are possible across Northern England, Wales, the Midlands in particular. Temperatures ranging from the low to mid-20s, highs of 26 or 27 towards the London area. So feeling warm in that sunshine. Showers through Friday evening continue for a time, but they should ease across England and Wales. However, across Northern Ireland and Scotland, we'll see weather systems move in here, bringing outbreaks of rain. Some of this could be heavy at times during the early hours, some stronger winds developing here too. 
but elsewhere the dry weather holding on and a mild night once again, temperatures 16, 17 degrees for many of us. Which means a warm start to Friday, uh, Saturday morning. Best of the sunshine first thing across southeast England, wet across Scotland, Northern Ireland. This pushing its way southeastward, so becoming cloudier across Wales, southwest England with some patchy rain too. But it should generally stay dry across the far southeast. The rain continues to push in through the weekend, so all of us should see some rain at some point. But temperatures staying on the warm side, highs of 26 or 27.